Good morning, C3. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Happy Fourth of July. That is a, a magnificent lyric, isn't it? You delight in show. Thank you for that song. Thank you, you delight in showing mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes. So I want to start with a very uh, quick story that's true that ha happened some years back. Uh, Larry and I were working with a group that was connected. It was a Christmas time. And this group that we were working with was connecting with another group, um, like a, a civic group or church maybe it was, um, to provide gifts for children in an area of our town that weren't going to receive gifts. And so that was great. And we got it all together, and we found out what the children wanted um, as a gift or what, what, they, what they needed and what they wanted, and we were making connecting people with that need. Well, so there's one little boy, and he wanted a, it, it turns out he was like seven years old, seven or eight years old. He wanted a particular kind of shoes, some tennis shoes, maybe basketball shoes, basketball shoes like Air Jordans or whatever it was at the time. <laughs> that's, that, that's like a thousand years ago, maybe, but whatever it was at the time, that's what he wanted. And so great. So two teenage girls got together, and they went shopping, and they got, they found the size, and they got the boy his shoes. And everyone was really excited because the boy had one of these shoes and these girls had gotten shoes. So the day came, we went down to the place, we all came together and everybody was opening their presents and the girls were so excited. And they gave the gift to the little boy and he opened up the gift, it was a shoebox, <laughs> and he opened up a gift and he saw the, the name on the shoebox, it's very exciting. And he opened up the lid of the shoebox and he, his face fell. He was not excited. He was broken hearted. He was broken hearted. Yeah. He was very sad and, and no one understood what it was. And, and he, I, did, I can't remember if he started. started crying, yeah, I think so too. And so I went over there and I just said, oh dear, what has happened? Are these not the shoes that you wanted? We thought that these were the shoes that you wanted. Your mom had given us the... The, the, the size and, the, and, the and type everything. and everything. Right. And the girls, the givers were quite sad that, at his sadness. And he looked up and he said, I wanted blue and these are black. Mm -hmm. Now there's the story. The little boy was disappointed in the gift because he wanted blue shoes and the givers had, didn't know that and had given black shoes or green or whatever other color that wasn't blue. Here's the point of my story. I think that's a very normal thing for a seven-year-old boy to want a particular thing and get something else and be disappointed. I find that, find that normal. The girl's reaction I was very interested in. Can you guess what it might have been? The girls were a little bit, I'll indignant. say, fussy, indignant. Can you imagine what they might have, what might have been going through their mind? What they might have been saying? I can. I'm not sure if they said it or think they did. Um, well, that boy doesn't have any shoes. He should be happy with whatever shoes he gets, black or brown or blue or whatever color. You see, the givers of the gift had an expectation of a certain response attached to the gift. Yeah. And what that expectation was, was gratitude. Yeah. If you know, you know I, if you listen to me much at all, you know that a big part of my worldview has been colored by the writings of 
uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky. And he says this about that. He says that we as people don't often give to the poor because of our own expectation of gratitude. If they will respond the way we want them to, the way we expect, is very self-serving, isn't it? The way I want them to respond, then I might do better. But if you don't respond the way I expect you to, then I have a tendency not to want to give. If you don't respond well, I'm not going to give well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The end of the story ends well. We, I spoke with the <laughs> girls. We got it together. We took the shoes back and got the boy. The shoe the color. That, of course. Yeah. But that point is very important, I think. Right? Yes. yes. Thank you. You're welcome. That's a great, that's a great word. Right? The response of the, the one receiving the gift should not be important to the giver. Yeah. Shouldn't drive whether we give or not. Right. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Yep. Why don't you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can gather together today and worship you and think about you and hopefully hear from you. Lord, if you can uh, calm stormy seas and defeat mighty armies and even move mountains, I have to believe that you can move our hearts from one of those three type soils that Jesus spoke about that missed what you wanted to do in their, their hearts. Uh, would you move our hearts so that we become like that fourth soil? So that we can hear and understand and receive the word that you have for us today. Lord, if you don't, we will miss it. We'll miss it completely. We will apply it to other people or we'll think it's unimportant. God, please make our hearts today like that fourth soil so that you can do something mighty and wonderful and lasting in each one of us. I pray in Christ's name, amen. I want to read to you a passage of scripture this morning from James chapter 2. It's actually the first 17 verses, and if you've got a copy of God's Word, I wish you'd follow along. This is Jesus' brother, James, and he says this. Notice he starts off by saying, Dear brothers and sisters. And if you'll follow along, he says it three times. Dear brothers and sisters. He's speaking to those that he views as being children of God. People that are spiritually connected to God people that know and love and follow God. So he starts off, Dear brothers and sisters, show no favoritism as you focus your faith on the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. By example, suppose a rich person and a poor person come into your meeting. If you give special attention to the rich person but ignore the poor person, doesn't this discrimination show that your values and motives are evil. Listen, dear brothers and sisters, God has chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith. Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom God has promised to those who love Him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you to court? 
They're the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear. Yes, it's good when you obey God's royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over other people, you are committing sin. You're breaking God's law for the people, I'm sorry, for the person who keeps all of God's laws but one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. So if you murder someone but don't commit adultery, you've still broken God's law. So whatever you say or do, remember that you will be judged by God's law that gives us freedom. There'll be no mercy for people who have not shown mercy. But if you've shown mercy, God will show mercy to you when He judges you. What good is it, brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it with your actions? Can that kind of faith really save you? Suppose you see a person who has no food or clothing, and you speak kind words to them, but don't give them, but don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see that faith by itself isn't enough. Faith that doesn't result in good deeds is dead and useless. In light of uh, all that's been going on, <clears throat> excuse me, in the world lately, uh, speci- you know, in particular our country, I just wanted to think about James chapter two with you for a few minutes, and I wanted to uh, really highlight three things that I think James is saying here. I want you to think about them with me. Uh, As I've spent time the last couple of weeks thinking about this passage, one of the things that just has jumped out at me in a very fresh way, especially in this passage, and that is that the God of the Bible chooses the poor. I think that's very important. Do we realize that? That the God of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation chooses the poor. He doesn't choose the poor because of their response or reaction or their effective expressions of gratitude. He chooses the poor because that is his nature. It's who he is. It's a part of his DNA. (coughs) And you see this choice that God makes for the poor over all others running throughout the scriptures. I find it significant throughout the Mosaic law as God is preparing his people to go into the promised land. He spends an incredible uh, amount of time, an incredible, in my opinion, disproportionate amount of ink telling his people how, once they enter the promised land, to relate to the poor in their offerings that they bring to the, uh, the, the tabernacle and someday the temple, <coughs> how they harvest their crops, creating these cities of refuge. And I could go on with other examples. God spends an, a, a disproportionate amount of time 
as the people of God prepare to go into the promised land, he's preparing them in how they're going to relate to the poor. It's a big deal to God that his people, once they enter into his uh, uh, land of blessings, that they relate well to the orphan, the widow, the alien, the poor, the homeless. He says in uh, Proverbs 17 that people who mock the poor and the misfortunate insult their maker and they will be punished by God. Who else does God say that about? Think for a minute as you reflect on the scriptures. Who else does God say, if you mock them, you're insulting me and I promise you that I'll punish you for it. Who else does God say that about? Clearly the poor have a special place in God's heart. Clearly the, that the poor are, uh, have a higher level of focus by God than anyone else. In Ezekiel 16, God condemns Sodom and Gomorrah. But it, we, we read Genesis uh, and, and we think we've got, it, we've got the whole Bible figured out. But we don't read the rest of the scriptures so often. And what Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 16 is that God did not condemn Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sexual behaviors. God condemned and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their pride, their laziness, and their unwillingness to give mercy to the poor. In Luke 5, Jesus says, I didn't come to call people who are doing great. I came to call people that are in genuine need. In the next chapter of Luke, Luke 6, Jesus says, God bless you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Now in Matthew, Matthew uh, heard Jesus say in another sermon that God blesses you that are poor in spirit, for the kingdom of God is yours. But Luke heard uh, heard a different message, a different now where Jesus focuses not on the poor in spirit, but simply on the poor. God bless you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says this, a remarkable statement. Paul says, brothers and sisters, few of you were wise and powerful and wealthy in the world's eyes when God called you. God chose the foolish and the weak things of this world to shame those that think they are wise and powerful. Who did God call? Who did God choose? Those in this world that are considered foolish and weak. That's the poor. The Bible reveals a God who focuses on and delights in sharing mercy, His mercy, with people that are in true need. Jesus came to be the way, not for people who have a, 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 a glove box full of maps. He came to, to be the way <clears throat> for people that have lost their way. He came to be bread for people that are hungry, water for people that are thirsty, to be a healer for those that are sick, to be the light for the blind, and to be a parent 
for the orphan. God delights in people who have empty hands. Why? Because only those with empty hands will reach out and cling to Him and receive what He offers them. The Bible declares that God's gift of salvation is in a very real sense is only effectual for those that are poor. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. Jesus came to make poor people rich. He did not come for people who say, I've got this. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm good enough without your help. I can do this on my own. He came for people who said, yes, I'm poor. And I cannot deal with the issues that matter in life on my own. I need your help. That's who Jesus came for. Those that are poor. In that passage in James 2, not only does it emphasize that God has chosen the poor, but it also clearly declares that the people that know and love and follow God will also choose the poor as well. The poor will be their focus and their priority as well. James declares that there's no clearer way for anyone to to reveal that they know and love and follow God than by their willingness to show mercy to people that are poor. I'm not saying, and James was not saying, that showing mercy to the poor earns our salvation or produces saving faith, but it does reveal it. It gives evidence to the fact that something has happened in our lives supernaturally. Is that not at least one of the major messages of the story of the Good Samaritan? Three men walked by a poor man, a man in desperate need. Two men walked on by, good men, successful men, brilliant men, prosperous men, but they didn't help. What's the point of the story? People that know and love and follow God, people that have experienced a supernatural work of God in their heart, they'll stop. They'll stop and help those in need. And I, the, the rich man in Lazarus, a rich man, doesn't say he was a bad man, doesn't say he was a mean man, doesn't say that he was out doing wicked things. All it says is that he was living a life of abundance. And there was a man outside his, outside his gate that was in need. Both died. One went to heaven and one did not. What's the point of the story? There are many things to learn from the story. But surely, one of the things that Jesus is saying is that it is, in, it is a huge mistake for people to ignore those in need. I noticed reading through the book of Acts, um, I never saw this before, but every person in the book of Acts that I could find that the early church honored, that the early church said, that's a man of God. That's a person that has the hand of God upon their life. That's a person that has the Spirit of God within them. 
One of the qualities that they say, that they uh, described about each of these people was, that is someone who helped the poor. And I can give you example after example throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. One of the indications that we have the Spirit of God within us, that we know and love and follow the Son of God, is that we recognize His focus is on the poor. And because we have that nature, His nature now within us, we focus on the poor as well. Regardless of their response. Regardless of their response. Thank you very much. Um, I was listening to somebody the other day that really uh, rattled my cage uh, in, a, in a wonderful way, Tim Keller. And he was talking about this very idea of our responsibility to help the poor. And one of the things that he said that I'd never, I didn't know was that uh, before the early church, before the New Testament church uh, infiltrated the entire Roman Empire, in the Roman language, the word mercy really just was synonymous with being kind. If you were a merciful person, you were just a kind person, a nice person, a good person. But after so many years of the, of the New Testament church spreading throughout the Roman Empire, that word transitioned, uh, the word mercy transitioned from being a word that just meant being kind and nice to being exclusively used. If you said you are a merciful person, what you were saying was you help the poor. It's an amazing idea to me that the, that the New Testament church was so committed to helping the poor that they changed the linguistic structure of an entire empire's language and changed a word that used to be uh, just used for being nice to being a word used solely for people that helped the poor. That's why Paul, one of his favorite churches, probably the church that he spent the most time with, uh, was the uh, church at Ephesus. And in Ephesus, I mean, I'm sorry, in Acts 20, as Paul leaves Ephesus uh, for his last visit with them, he will never see them again. This is what, these were his closing words. Paul's final words to the church at Ephesus, he said, Live as I have lived, work hard, and help the poor. Live as I've lived, work hard. Why? So you'll have money. Why do you need money? To help the poor. Could God be calling us to impact our world in an incredibly significant way right now? Like the early church did the Roman Empire. I believe that God very well could be raising up the church, calling the church out to be that salt and light that we once were in earlier uh, ages, in earlier centuries, in earlier cultures. And we can influence this, our culture, our society, our nation, our world. Could it be that God would be calling us to be that salt and that light and that influence by how we help the poor. I want to give you just two thoughts on where to begin. How, how do you do that? Where do you start? If I wanted to become a part of that influence, that movement, where do I begin? 
The first thing I would say is this. James says it in uh, chapter 2, the very first verse. He says, show no favoritism. Show no prejudice as you focus your faith on the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, as we ponder the Lord's glory, we will be transformed into His image. I have to take those two verses and uh, together to mean that one of the ways that God will change me at my core, change me into the person that God created me to be and called me to be, change me into a person that sees and thinks and behaves differently, relates to people in ways that don't reflect the culture or the upbringing that I might have had, but I I see them, I I think about them, I value them, and I relate to them in in a totally different way. One of the ways that God accomplishes that is as I daily behold the image of Christ in God's Word. The more I behold Him as the model, the standard, the example, I will be changed into that same kind of person and I will begin to treat people the way Jesus treated people and the way Jesus treats me. And then in Philippians 2, Paul says this, Don't look only to your own interest, but also look out for the interest of others. Have this mindset, the mindset of Christ, who though he was God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but he willingly emptied himself of what? Of that glory that very glory that we're supposed to behold as we study Him and read Him and observe His life, He emptied Himself and served others. You know what that means to me just very practically? That means that the kind of mercy that God wants us to show to people in need, the poor, those that uh, cannot help themselves, God wants us to show a mercy that is sacrificial, that is costly. This is such a a, a huge lesson for parents and grandparents. Do our families, do they witness us showing mercy that is costly, that is sacrificial? Do our children and our grandchildren, do they ever hear us say, We're not going to go out to dinner tonight. We're going to stay home and we're going to eat something less expensive so that we can take that money we would have spent on that meal and we're going to give it to somebody in need. We're going to go on a lesser vacation or God forbid, skip a trip this year. And we're going to take that money And we're going to give it to a family that is hurting. We're going to drive a less expensive car or live in a less expensive house. Do our our children and our grandchildren ever see, ever hear, ever experience that, that costly, sacrificial mercy, the giving of mercy to help people that have not been blessed as much as we have? I read James chapter 2. 
And what I walk away uh, thinking is this. The smartest thing I will ever do in my life is show mercy to the poor. The dumbest thing I will ever do in my life is to not show mercy to the poor. That rich man that had Lazarus living outside his gate, that man would tell you the dumbest thing he ever did was not show mercy to the poor. I think of Boaz in the book of Ruth. He walked out into his field and he saw a poor person trying to gather enough grain so that she and her mother-in-law wouldn't starve to death. And he showed that lady mercy. I'm telling you, if Boaz was sitting here today with me, he would say the smartest thing he ever did was show mercy to the poor. It's very popular in Washington right now and on Fox News and CNN to declare that they have great concern for the poor and that the other side has none. But I just wonder what percentage of those talking heads, what percentage of their income, what percentage of their time do they actually give, sacrificially give to help the people that they claim to care about? We live in a very confusing world that's filled with very, very difficult problems. But it seems like that all that we hear is our, we focus our attention on what the other side's not doing right and is doing wrong to the exclusion of focusing on what we can do better, what we're doing wrong and what we need to do better. And I'm not sure what to think about all that. I'm not sure how to respond to all that. But I believe with all of my heart that God is calling His people to reveal to a lost and dying world who God is and what Jesus looks like by our commitment to show mercy to the world, to a world of poor people, a world of people that are hurting and in need. And the Bible says that when we um, are unwilling to um, respond to what God is saying, when we're unwilling to hear what God's saying and let God open our eyes to what He wants to, us to see, and when we're unwilling to let Him soften our hearts so that we can experience and behave as God wants us to, the Bible says that God will go to drastic measures to shake us up so that we can see and hear and feel and behave as God's calling us to. That's why Paul says in Hebrews 12, that God is shaking what is temporary so that only what is unshakable will be left behind. Um, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And we do this each week uh, because Jesus asked us to. And one of the reasons that we take this bread, which represents the body of Jesus, and we take this wine, which, wine or juice that represents His blood and eat and drink it, we do this uh, to declare that we were given grace by God. God sent us His Son who died on the cross so that we could experience eternal life. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't live good enough for it. We needed someone to give us that which we did not deserve and could not 
earth. And God did that for us when he sent his son. And so we eat this bread and we drink this wine or juice just as a way of declaring that we are the beneficiaries of the grace and the mercy of God himself. As a benediction, I ask Sherry to read just a point um, that I think sort of will uh, end well, end this little discussion well. So would you read that, Sherry? I will. Um, it's by the Victorian poet, poetess, <laughs> Jane Taylor. It's entitled Poverty, about the poverty in her day. I saw an old cottage of clay, and only of mud was the floor. It was all falling into decay, and the snow drifted in at the door. Yet there a poor family dwelled, in a hovel so dismal and rude. And though gnawing hunger they felt, they had not a morsel of food. The children were crying for bread, and to their poor mother they'd run. Oh, give us some breakfast, they said, but alas, their poor mother had none. She viewed them with looks of despair, and she said, and I'm sure it was true, "'Tis not for myself that I care.' but my poor little children for you. And then she stops and comments to another group. Oh, then let the wealthy and gay see such a hovel as this, that in a poor cottage of clay, they may know what true misery is. And what I may have to bestow, I will never squander away. While many poor people I know around me are as wretched as they. It's a cry for us, a plea for us to open our eyes to those around us. Amen. Thank you.